John uh, has written to the church, and he's written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And one of the main ways that John is trying to strengthen our belief is that he shows us seven signs in the, the first portion of his gospel. And usually, the, uh, the significance of the sign is a, uh, a lot more important than the sign itself, and it uh, receives a lot more space. And so the feeding of the 5,000 is this, the sign that we're on in chapter 6 of John, and that's no different. The sign itself is recorded in a relatively succinct way, and then the bulk of the chapter is devoted to the response of the crowd and Jesus' interactions with the crowd. Um, the crowd itself has shown a great deal of enthusiasm. They're not just interested in Jesus' message, but they're eagerly, eagerly following him into the wilderness, so much so that they'll just sort of go out there without food to be around Jesus. That sounds like a good thing. Um, they're ready to make him their king. And, you know, in our day, that would be a little strange. In that day, that would be suicide, uh, unless you had an army to back it up. Rome did not sit well with things like that. Um, and the, the only explanation for the reason that they would do that is that they genuinely believed that Jesus had the power to, to stand up to the Romans. Um, so they, they, they must see their idea of who the Messiah was going to be in, in Jesus, someone that would fulfill the many promises that God had made to uh, the nation of Israel over the generations. And you know, of those promises, I think they're particularly focused on the kingdom promises that you know, God would establish a, 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 an eternal kingdom and David would uh, kind of rule over the earth. Um, Jesus looks at this crowd, though, and he doesn't see authentic faith. And you, Jesus confronts the crowds. The crowd uh, had followed Jesus. They basically say, how did you get across the lake? We know that he walked, but um, the crowd couldn't figure that out. Jesus ignores that, and he, he goes kind of straight to the point. Um, and uh, questions the authenticity of their, their faith. Um, there's one detail that I, I think is worth looking at that will kind of remind us of what we talked about la last time. I, I didn't mention this, but one thing that we do see in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000 that isn't in the Synoptic Gospels is that John mentions that Jesus uh, fed the crowds using barley uh, bread. And that doesn't mean all that much to us, when we covered this in our small group, I actually d decided we, we usually have some kind of snacks beforehand, and I thought it would be fun to try barley bread for the first time. It's hard to find <laughs> um, and, and difficult to find even a good recipe for it. Um, you, you have to kind of go to high-end health food stores, but that would be the, the exact opposite of how it would have been in the first century. Um, barley bread was kind of the lowest of the low. Um, you'd have to be pretty hard up to go after barley bread rather than uh, wheat bread. M most of the, the barley that was uh, produced was used to feed animals. So, and that kind of puzzled me. Why is it that you know, if Jesus is feeding people, why is he y using kind of the bottom shelf bread, so to speak? Uh, why not you know, feed them something a little bit better? <laughs> Uh, he, he, if he, he certainly has the power to do that. And I, I think that what John is, is uh, recording is that you know, the people are willing to settle for barley bread, not for true bread. And I, I think that's the point that John wants us to see. And th that's 
certainly what we saw last time kind of in the exchange between the, the crowd and Jesus, and that kind of led uh, to Jesus' you know, uh, famous statement, you know, I am the bread of life. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read the section that we're going to look at this week, and then we're going to come back and examine some points. There's a lot of material here, and we're not necessarily going to hit every single thing, but I'm going to try to hit what I, I think is the most interesting and the most important. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mothers we know? How does he now say that I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate, ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, that you may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because, because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, um, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So the, the very first state statement that we come to you know, kind of feels at least like the high point of, of the, this uh, exchange between Jesus and, and the crowd. It's also the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Um, the next one comes in chapter 8. There's several in chapter 10, 11, 14, and, and 15. Um, the, the statements are, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, and I am the vine. Um, and so we will be coming to some of these statements in this series. Uh, as I've announced, we're going to be stopping around the end of John 11 
And at some point, I would like to pick up and finish the gospel, but that's probably years down the road. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the, the, this was prepared over several years for a small group series. Um, I don't think I could kind of keep up with this, so I would need to do a lot of advanced prep work before we could restart John. Uh, so we, we kind of already got into this because Jesus said a lot of things that I think have kind of led up to this statement. This statement should make sense. What Jesus is saying um, when he's uh, the bread of life is that he sustains life, and not so much physical life, as, although he does that, but he sustains spiritual life. Um, your bread at that time was the staple. That's where you got most of the calories that you really required. You, you really couldn't get by on a diet that didn't include a significant amount of bread. You wouldn't have gotten enough calories uh, back in that day. Um, so there, um, one of the questions, you, whoever believes in me shall not hunger, um, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, is Jesus saying that we're immune to hunger and thirst here? And I, I think he is in the spiritual sense. Um, Jesus perfectly reveals the Father. Um, Jesus perfectly and superabundantly satisfies our needs spiritually, and these are the more important needs. And so we know that if God has gone through all of the effort of sending Jesus to satisfy these spiritual needs, if physical needs do come up, uh, and they have for many believers over the centuries, you know, believers have starved to death. Um, Believers have died of thirst. We know that God could have satisfied those needs, and we also know that God promises uh, to work all things for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purposes. And so we know that, uh, um, that God is in control and that God is choosing to withhold uh, something for the good of, of that believer, uh, as hard as it can be to imagine in difficult circumstances. Um, one of the Old Testament uh, passages that you know, really comes to mind, I'm going to read it, I'm not going to put it up on the screen, is the kind of great gospel offer that we see in the first verses of Isaiah 55. I, I know that I've uh, brought this up several times before, it'll probably come up a, a few more times, but I, I think that you know, it probably is on Jesus' mind here and in other places in the gospel of John, and so it's worth just listening to again. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. And so, this is a promise that I'm sure would have been familiar to Jesus' listeners, and Jesus is saying that he's the fulfillment of this Old Testament promise and many others, I think, what he's saying, that he's the bread of life. Jesus is the reality that this is pointing to. Um, the crowd doesn't uh, understand this. In, in light of the crowd's response, what, what we see is that they're willing to work for a kingdom. Um, by declaring Jesus to be king, they would be bringing on themselves the full wrath of the Roman Empire. So they're, they're certainly willing to take huge risks for what they believe, um, but they're, they're a lot less willing to simply come to the free gospel offer that Jesus is presenting. Um, the, uh, we're going to um, move on to kind of the next verses. So if we look at verse 35 and then verse 36, 
Um, we've got Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then Jesus says, but I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. How do these two come together? And I think Jesus is the reality that the manna and the feeding of the 5,000 are pointing to. He's just desperately trying to help this crowd see that connection. But and it, their response has become almost comical. They can't get their minds off of physical food. Um, even though the, we understand they're probably focused on the Messiah and kind of using the same language that Jesus is using. Okay, I'm going to need to get into my settings and see if I can keep this on longer. Um, but that'll be later. One of the things that I, I found a little bit ironic looking at this is that you know, in the Old Testament, I'm going to uh, go ahead and put up Deuteronomy 8.3. Oh, there's the 7 am statements, which I missed. Um, this, you know, Deuteronomy is kind of written at the end of the uh, you know, 40 years in the, the wilderness. It's kind of a summation of you know, Moses' teaching uh, to the, the people of Israel. One of the points that Moses makes, and he humbled you and let you uh, know, and let, and let you hunger, and then fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What Moses is saying there is that the manna in the wilderness was a sign of a greater reality that they didn't get. <laughs> and so it, I guess it isn't a huge surprise that, um, that you know, the, the people of Israel in Jesus' time is not recognizing the, the significance of the feeding of the 5,000 either, just like the uh, Israelites didn't recognize the, the manna in the wilderness. The next thing we're going to come to is uh, verse 37 that I'm going to focus in on, and I'm going to uh, remind us of just a little bit more before we come back to this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. These are among many verses in the Scripture that uh, uh, synergists have a very difficult time explaining. And uh, let me step back and uh, introduce a couple terms for those of you that might not be familiar with them. Monergism is the uh, theology that says that salvation is entirely from God and that we contribute nothing to it. Synergism, you can kind of hear synergy in that word, is a, a theology that says that there are contributions both from God and from people. And you, better the, uh, um, synergistic theologians would say that the contributions from people are very small and the contributions from people are, are from God are very large, but people are still contributing a little something to their salvation. Um, and I kind of prefer that to Calvinist and Arminian theology, and so I'm going to use monergism and th synergism, but the, the two can be used almost interchangeably. Um, as I said, you know, these verses are kind of a challenge to a synergistic system. Um, and so the argument that you'll typically hear, at least the, the, the best that I've kind of come across, is that the plain meaning of the text can't be what Jesus is really saying. 
because it wouldn't be helpful. Um, it would almost be like Jesus is kind of rubbing the crowd's nose in the fact that they're not elect. Um, and I, I think that there is a valid point there. If Jesus were simply saying, you know, you're not um, among the chosen, there's nothing you can do about it, tough. Um, I, I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do. I, it, I think it's clear in the text that Jesus is trying to be helpful. He's trying to bring the crowds to authentic faith rather than simply you know, interest in science. Um, and so we certainly do need to be able to look at this and see that you know, there's uh, a way of understanding it that's compatible with the, the, the plain meaning. And there is. <clears throat> so the, I, I think the, the basic idea is that what Jesus is doing is he's using means to try to draw his sheep out from the crowd. He's promising to perfectly care for those who choose to feed on him. The crowd isn't overtly rejecting Judaism or Jesus. You know, they, they see themselves as Jews, but they see themselves as being entitled to good standing with God uh, just because of their ethnicity and because they have come up with a way of looking at the law that they can kind of sort of mostly keep. Um, they probably see Jesus as a good teacher uh, and maybe a prophet in the Old Testament tradition, maybe, uh, maybe more than that. He's the Messiah in the, the way that they see the Messiah, but they don't see him as their only hope for salvation. What Jesus is doing is he's attacking that confidence. He's saying that if they don't come to him, if they're rejecting him, what they're re um, rejecting is God himself, and they're, they're showing themselves not to be God's people. Um, unless they open their eyes and embrace him as true spiritual food, they don't belong to God in the first place. And that's an unthinkable concept to a first century Jew. But it's also the very first thing that Jesus needs to uh, attack and needs to break down to convince them of their need for him and to, you, to bring them to saving faith. So he's breaking down false assurance. Um, <clears throat> And we, we, we know certainly that you know, that false assurance would be present. And so there's no reason not to accept those words at face value. Um, the, the, the kind of second part of the, the statement, um, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Uh, this one... It, it takes a little bit of thought to get to, and one of the commentaries I looked at, th this is the commentary by D.A. Carson, I thought did a particularly good job. And so rather than try to restate what D.A. Carson said much less adequately, I'm just going to read the way that D.A. Carson e explains this. The second part of this verse is frequently misunderstood. Formerly, it is, uh, formerly it's, it's a latotes, a figure of speech in which something is affirmed by negating the contrary. So, a citizen of no mean city means a citizen of a rather important city. When Jesus says that whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, the affirmative that he's expressing in this fashion is often taken to mean, whoever comes to me, I will certainly welcome. The second part of the verse becomes a softening of the predestinarianism in the first part. But, in fact, the affirmation expressed in this Latotes is rather different. Whoever comes to me, I will certainly keep in and preserve. So the, the flow of the verse is as follows. 
all that, and it's a singular that's uh, uh, used to refer to the elect collectively there, all that the Father gives to Jesus as a gift to the Son will surely come to Him. And whoever, in fact, comes by virtue of being given by the Father to the Son, Jesus undertakes to keep in, to preserve. The second part of the verse moves from the collective whole to the individual and from the actual coming, consequent of being part of the gift, to preservation. This interpretation is suggested uh, by a Greek verb that I'm not going to try to pronounce that means drive away or cast away. In almost all of its parallel occurrence, occurrences, it is presupposed that uh, what is driven or cast away is already in. I will never drive away, therefore, means I will certainly keep in. This interpretation, however strongly supported by the verb, is required in the context of the next three verses, and I think that will be clear as we start to unpack those verses. So the four in verse 38, uh, what, what's going on there? Um, if we take this, the reading of 37 to, be, to mean, um, whoever comes to me I will be, by no means drive out, um, then the connection makes good sense. God's will is that Jesus will lose none of the Father, that the Father has given to him, and that Jesus, uh, we know, is going to perfectly obey the Father's will. And so since Jesus uh, is kind of on the subject of, of drawing, uh, one you know, important tenet of Calvinism, he's also getting to the perseverance of the saints uh, in the, the subject as well. So let's kind of look at the flow of Jesus' argument overall. Um, and I think this will make a little bit more sense when you kind of try to see the, the flow of the argument. The, the first thing that Jesus says is, I'm the bread of life. And we've talked about what he means by that. Whoever comes to, to me and believes will not hunger or thirst. The crowd has seen him, but the crowd doesn't believe. Um, if they were the fathers, they would. They would come and they re re would remain. Therefore, while they think they're God's chosen people, willing to enthusiastically work for God's Messiah, they're demonstrating that they're not God's people at all because they won't come to Jesus and freely accept what he offers. Jesus is talking to a crowd of devout Jews. They're very religious, and they're, they're fully persuaded of the truth of the Scriptures, and they're completely confident of their right standing before God. That confidence, though, is based on their ethnicity and on their works, and Jesus is attacking that confidence. He's saying that the eternal life that they believe that they possess only comes through Him. He's saying that if they turn away from Him, they never had eternal life in the first place. Jesus perfectly keeps His people, those, um, but those who are never His um, will, will reject Him and will walk away. So, this is, brings up a lot of issues, and I think it's worth talking about at least a, a small fraction of the, the things that would certainly come up. Um, should this idea of election ever lead to fatalism? Is, you, you might say, well, you know, God you know, eternally chose who will be saved and who won't be saved before the foundations of the earth. What does it matter what I do? Um, and this you know, obviously it can't be correct because it, it ignores significant uh, parts of the Scripture as, as well. It ignores human responsibility, which is you know, just as clearly taught in the Scripture, among other things. It doesn't mean that we're not to obey God's call, but I think what it does mean is that we, when we hear God's call and when we do respond in faith, we're to realize that it's not because of any intrinsic goodness in us. It's not because we're smarter or better than, than someone that rejects this, the same call but it's because of God's mercy enabling us to respond.
Um, similarly, if someone's rejecting God's call, they're not kept from responding. They're freely choosing uh, to do exactly what they want to do, which is to reject God. And we see this you know, illustrated in Jesus' perseverance with this crowd. You know, he is trying to bring them to authentic faith. Um, he's using means to try to bring that about. Um, and so, you know, Jesus certainly doesn't see this you know, election which we know happened before the foundation of the world in a fatalistic way. He, he proclaims the gospel and he tries to bring people to himself. Um, Jesus is about to be rejected not only by this entire crowd that um, had listened to him at length and had seen the, these signs. Um, the, the other gospels tell us about a lot of signs that were performed before uh, other groups in this area that the crowd would certainly be aware of and may have been present for. But in fact, a lot of the um, people that had been following Jesus, uh, disciples, not the, the 12 disciples, but kind of a larger group of disciples, are about to reject Jesus as well. How do these verses help us to understand that uh, Jesus' ministry isn't a failure? And what Jesus is teaching is that you know, every single person that the Father has given to him will come to him and will accept that message. And so um, the you know, re rejection you know, isn't a failure. It's, it's simply people showing that they were not among those that the Father had given to him. And, you know, I, I certainly think that we can take comfort in, in that. God's sovereignty and salvation um, means that, you know, there, there isn't uh, anything that we can do to present the gospel better that would bring someone that might not come if we didn't quite present it as well. And similarly, when we don't present the gospel nearly as well as we could, God can still use that and can still bring people to himself. We can only present the gospel, but the reception does not depend on the quality of our presentation, but the work of the Holy Spirit. That isn't to say that we shouldn't try to find ways of presenting the gospel as well as we can, and we shouldn't try to understand and, and appreciate the gospel better, but that we should have faith in the gospel's ability to, to penetrate hearts, not our ability to present it. The next thing that we come to is that the Jews are grumbling, and they're they're grumbling because he said, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. Isn't this uh, Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus uh, answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father uh, who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on this last day. One of the things we see in this verse uh, kind of echoes back to the Old Testament. Uh, John has referred a lot to the Exodus account. And so we shouldn't be surprised that just as the people of, Is of God grumbled in the wilderness, even at the manna that God provided, um, they're now grumbling at the true manna that God is providing. Um, the specific complaint is basically, you know, how can Jesus say that he's come down from heaven if he's just the son of the sky we know, you know in the village down the road? Um, and Jesus doesn't directly address that in his response, but what he's, he, he attempts to do is he helps them to realize that the teaching that he is presenting could only be from God and that they would respond to that teaching if their uh, hearts were tuned to listen to God. Instead, when they, they pr are presented with teaching from God, they're looking for ways to find fault with it, and that's because dead hearts always look for ways of, of suppressing spiritual truth. 
their response is demonstrating that they're actually the opposite of what they believe themselves to be. Um, another thing that I think is worth bringing up, um, there are, it's hard to find, but there are very well-developed systems of synergistic theology, of Arminian theology. Um, most Arminians that you'll encounter don't have uh, the depth of, of theology to, to understand it, but they, 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 it does exist. Um, and if you uh, kind of look at a good presentation of synergistic theology, the kind of the bedrock of it is a concept called prevenient grace. Um, what that is, is that the, the scriptures are very clear that um, man will not come to God on his own, that God you know, has to do something to bring man to himself. And so within Arminian theology, they believe that uh, God did something that made it possible for man to come to God when man wouldn't have on his own. Uh, that's provenient grace. And so anyone could respond to this provenient grace. Um, and Ar Arminianism would really fall apart without that. It would not work. Is it compatible with verse 44? And I would certainly say no. Uh, you know, in in the, the, the context, what's decisive in whether someone comes to Jesus is the drawing of the Father. Um, and you, you don't see provenient grace there. And by the way, you really don't see provenient grace clearly taught in any other uh, part of Scripture either. There's verses that a, a good Arminian could point to that, um, you know, if you kind of look at it from the right angle, you could kind of see provenient grace there maybe. But um, it's, it simply is not clearly uh, taught in an unambiguous way in any, uh, any text in Scripture. The next thing I'd like to look at is this phrase, and they will all be taught by God. Jesus is uh, quoting from the Old Testament or paraphrasing from the Old Testament, at least in um, the translation I looked at. It's not exactly the same, but it's pretty close. Um, how, how does this kind of follow is what we're going to be looking at next. How does this relate to the drawing that's discussed in verse 44? The when the New Testament quotes Old Testament prophet, uh, passages, often it's not just implying the text itself, but the, the passage around it. And this is certainly a part of Isaiah that you know, Jesus' readers would be very familiar with. It, uh, if, you, if you kind of look at Isaiah, if you go back two chapters, you've got, got Isaiah 53. And that's you know, probably the chapter in Isaiah that Christians are most familiar with. That's the, uh, it's the last of the four servant songs in, in Isaiah. Um, and it, it's you're kind of the clearest picture we have in the Old Testament, at least to me, uh, of Jesus, who, who he would be, what he would do. Um, the next chapter, Isaiah 54, uh, comes right after you know, this messianic prophecy, and it, it's looking for a time, um, it talks about a time where God was angry with his people and he disciplined them for a little while, and that's the Babylonian captivity. But then the, the passage is looking ahead uh, to a time of continued compassion from God to his people. You, one of the verses that you'll see there that you might have seen before is that if anyone stirs up strife, it will not be from me. Um, 
so I think Christ is applying this uh, chapter to those who follow him. And it's kind of interesting that he's applying it to those who follow him rather than es- ethnic Israel, which would be the way that a Reformed theologian would probably look at that passage, but not the way a dispensationalist would look at it. And I'm very curious how dispensationalists would get around, uh, you know, uh, would, would deal with this. Um, but is this just a parenthetical remark? Um, how does it kind of fit into the, the flow of, the, of thought? Um, so take a look at the phrase, and they will all be taught by God. First of all, who is they? In this context, it, it's the people that God is dealing compassionately with in Isaiah chapter 54. So a Jewish reader would assume that that's ethnic Israel in the, in the uh, Messianic age. But I think Jesus is saying that it's referring exclusively to those who follow him. Um, Jesus has just quoted Isaiah in saying that all God's people will be taught by God. But this, this must be something more. It must be something different than simply being taught by another prophet in the Old Testament tradition. Isaiah is a prophet. You know, he's teaching them from God, but this is referring to a time when God will teach in a more direct way. So there, there must be someone coming that's going to teach from God in a more direct way than the Old Testament prophets taught. Um, and, you know, I think we can certainly look and say, well, Jesus has come from heaven. He's teaching directly from God, not indirectly through, through messages. Um, if we go back to the prologue in John, where John introduces a lot of different themes that are going to be important in the gospel, he concludes it by saying, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so Jesus is the, the fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about at this time when they're going to be taught in a more direct way by God. And that, that's what he's meaning by bringing this up. It's not easy to see, but once you look at it carefully, it, it really, I think, it has to be there. So, um, let's see. I'm, what I'd like to do is look at kind of what Jesus is saying broadly in verses 47 through 56. Um, you know, Jesus is coming back to this idea of his flesh being real food and his blood being real drink. We, we dealt with this last week. In Greek philosophy, uh, an important idea was these, this idea of ideal forms where there, there's an ultimate expression of something and everything that we have in this world is kind of a pale imitation of that. And so, you know, we have, you know, in this world, we've got bread and we've got cheeseburgers and other things to eat. But all of these are a, kind of a pale shadow of true food because they'll sustain you for a while, but then you get hungry that afternoon and you need to eat it again. You need to eat more food. The, the food sustains life, but it doesn't sustain life indefinitely. True food would ultimately satisfy and would sustain you indefinitely or would sustain you eternally. Um, So I'd, I'd like to kind of look at some ideas from this discourse kind of as a whole. Um, one of them is you know, Jesus is often talking about eating his flesh and eventually he's going to start talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Should someone that's listening to this take him literally? And 
I would go back to you know, the statement, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I, I think in that statement, if we look at it closely, we can see that that's not meant to be taken literally, because you know, if, if Jesus is bread, he might satisfy hunger, but he's not going to satisfy thirst. Bread, if anything, makes you thirsty, if, especially if you just eat a piece of bread on its own. You're immediately thirsty. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, Jesus isn't t- talking literally, and I, I think the crowds should realize that and, and should realize that he's speaking metaphorically. They don't necessarily get the metaphor, but I, I think that they, they understand that. Um, another question that comes up, especially when we you know, get to the part where Jesus starts including you know, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, is this referring to communion? And it, it's, I think, very natural for our minds to go there because when Jesus instituted communion, he said, this is my body as he broke bread, and this is my blood as he distributed wine. Um, but I think we, we really have to answer no to that. Um, I think the biggest issue is that communion isn't going to be instituted for another year. Uh, this is taking place at about the time of Passover. Jesus institutes Passover a year later, right before his uh, death on the cross. And Jesus is going out of his way, spending a lot of time with this crowd to try to help them understand something. And if Jesus brings up communion that's not going to exist for another year and expects them to understand it, he's not being very helpful. Um, But we know that Jesus is being helpful, so I don't think he's talking about communion directly here. Um, What I, I think is going on is that Jesus is pointing to a reality that we need Jesus uh, to sustain spiritual life. We've talked about this before. Communion is pointing to that exact same reality. So what we have are two different things that are very similar that are both pointing to the same reality, um, but they're not pointing to each other. The, The more that we look at Jesus' words, the harsher they seem. Why? Um, So Jesus is providing a lot of details that's or sorry, John in this section is providing a lot of details that are pointing to the crowd that's becoming more and more offended at what Jesus is saying. John wants us to focus on the idea that you know, Jesus is be proclaiming himself to be the bread that's necessary for life, and the crowd is becoming increasingly frustrated with that. I, I think it's not because they're failing to understand what Jesus is saying that they're becoming frustrated, but I think it's because that they're starting to understand what Jesus is saying that they're becoming frustrated. If the frustration were due to a failure to understand, we, we would have to think that Jesus would be able to perfectly and clearly communicate what he's trying to get across. And um, <clears throat> you, there, there's no way that Jesus would, would struggle to communicate what he's trying to communicate uh, to this crowd. Um, I think a more reasonable alternative is that the crowd is offended because they're starting to understand what Jesus does mean. What is so offensive? Well, (laughs) uh, the gospel is offensive. Um, The crowd is perfectly content to believe that Jesus is their idea of who the Messiah was going to be. They're ready to sign up and start driving the Romans back, enlist. But uh, a Messiah that provides... So a Messiah that provides what they want isn't offensive, but a Messiah and a Messiah that they could work for isn't offensive. But Jesus refuses their attempts uh, to make him king. He refuses to tell them uh, what good works God requires of them. Instead, Jesus tells them 
uh, that he doesn't need them, uh, that they need him. He tells them that their works are not of any value, but he's of in, uh, infinite value to them. Their nationality, their zeal, their performance of good works is of no value and can't provide real life. Real life can only be found in simple dependence on him. Their problem isn't putting food on the table or, re, uh, or turning the tables on the Romans. Their problem is that they need forgiveness for, uh, for the sins that the religious system is good at minimizing and that they need to know God uh, to be able to enjoy life in God's presence. And eventually he starts giving that statement even more teeth. Instead of saying that the crowd needs his flesh to enjoy eternal life, Jesus now emphasizes that they emphasize that they, they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He's emphasizing the offense. And I, the reason is that he's not content to allow this crowd to remain in what amounts to godless religion. They believe firmly in a religion that they've derived from the scriptures. They're quite devoted and zealous to it, but it's a religion that doesn't have a place for a savior. Uh, in fact, it's a religion that's blind, that, that blinds the crowds to the reality of who Jesus is. And it it's a religion that needs to go if the crowds are to grasp their needs for Jesus. Um, so if we step back and think about the, the flow of the passage, um, and I, I'd suggest that you just spend a little bit of time looking at this this week if you have the opportunity, what you'll see is Jesus again and again um, you're trying to help the crowd see their need for him, and you see the depth of the blindness and the stubbornness of humanity. Uh, in this crowd. And we have to realize that we're no different. We can fall into the same traps that uh, this crowd has. Um, one thing, though, that I think helps to understand this, um, I'm, I'm not completely confident on this, but I, I think I, I see enough that, uh, to, that I, I want you, I, I think this is worth thinking about. We've, you've constantly seen allusions in, in this section to, to Exodus. And an important part of the Exodus story is the Passover. So God has demanded that Pharaoh release the Israelites. Pharaoh refuses. And even after nine kind of increasingly serious plagues, Pharaoh still says no. Um, and God finally promises a tenth uh, plague that's, gonna, that's going to be even more de devastating. God's going to pass over the land and strike dead the firstborn from the least to the greatest in the entire land of Egypt. He will only spare those whose houses are covered by the blood of a Passover lamb. The Israelites are given instructions to bring a one-year-old lamb into their home and feed it for four days, feeding it, caring for it in their houses. And then at sunset on the Passover, they kill the lamb, they apply the blood to the doorposts, and they cook the lamb, and they eat the lamb in haste, prepared uh, to depart Egypt at a moment's notice. There's a lot of emphasis in the Exodus passage on the specific way in which they're to cook and eat the lamb uh, that has provided the, um, the cover for their houses that's going to prevent God's judgment from coming down on them, whose blood has covered their, door, their doorpost. And so I think Jesus is probably referring here to the, the Passover lamb and how he's the ultimate expression of that type from the Old Testament as well. You know, it, it's his blood and his flesh that are necessary for us. The the parallels don't, don't all work in a way that I could figure out this week looking at it. But I, th I think there's enough there that um, I, I, I'm at least reasonably certain that what, this is something that Jesus is pointing at. We, we certainly know that Jesus is the reality of the, the type of the Passover lamb. We, we see that elsewhere in the, um, in the New Testament. 
And so I, I, I think that's uh, part of the reason that Jesus is bringing uh, blood into this. So that, that brings us kind of to the end of this section, and I'll just kind of introduce some ideas that we'll, we'll come to next time. Um, the, and not just the crowd now, but the disciples hear this and saying, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? And what they mean there is not that I don't understand it, but I do understand it and I can't accept it. And so they're uh, um, about to reject Jesus uh, for the teaching that's contained in this passage. And so we're going to look at that next time, and we should be able to get into John ch chapter 7. We probably do have time for one question. Bob. I was wondering why, and I've wondered this for some time, why Jesus wasn't more direct in his uh, explanations about who he was. Uh, if, if he'd, you know, I would be very skeptical of somebody um, if, if he hadn't already come on the scene and, and he came about today. Mm -hmm. um, I would be asking, well, how's, how does this happen? If he said he, if he, if he had said, I was incarnate by the, in, by the power of the Holy <laughs> Spirit and born to the Virgin Mary, mm -hmm. and that's how I got here. You know, there's some kind of explanation like that mm -hmm. might have gone a, a long way towards some people, you know, accepting who he was. But Yeah. So you, you're bringing up two different things, uh, the, the second of which I'll, I'll start with, and that is, you know, how, how was this crowd supposed to know that what Jesus is saying is, is true? And we're going to come to that idea in John 7. Um, I, I think that's probably a better spot to deal with it because it's not a simple question. Um, but there, there are good answers. The, the short answer is Jesus is self-authenticating. He is who he is, and right. we have a responsibility to recognize that. So that's kind of a spoiler, I guess. But Thank you. Um, to, to get to your first point, I, th I think Jesus is being more and more direct Another way that I look at John, I, I could be wrong on this, but Jesus is probably, he's at a synagogue, he's probably spending hours going back and forth explaining things. And John is distilling things down. And as I read John at least, it, John has taken you know, very complicated ideas and condensed them to the point that they're very difficult to unpack. Um, Jesus probably is more direct in different, in, in different points you know, in this incident that act, as it actually happened, John is probably condensing it you know, in, into something. At least that's how I would answer that. But I, 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 I would say that I would very much doubt that Jesus hasn't very clearly communicated to this crowd at the end of it what he intends to mean. I think they, and I, I think we actually see that in this last verse. Um, We'll, we'll come to this next time, you know, but the crowd responds, or the disciples, in fact, not the 12, but the, you know, a larger group of disciples responds, this is a hard saying, who can listen to that? Apparently in Greek, it's very clear that this is not hard to understand. Uh, that's not what, what could be meant in Greek. It's, this is hard to accept. So they do understand it. They can't accept it. Thank you. What's hard to understand? We'll get to that next week. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being the bread that came down from heaven. We thank you for giving us true sustenance. Um, we thank you for giving yourself to us 
so that we could have spiritual life and we can be satisfied spiritually. I pray, Lord, this week that we would spend time in your word looking to you and coming to you for life. In Jesus' name, amen.